0: The following sermon was preached at Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. Um, you know as we we consider this this doctrine that is is so uh, hard to wrap our brains around this doctrine of the trinity that just doesn't seem to to fully compute um, you know, it, it can be a temptation, I think, as as Pastor Paul rightly said, to, you know, to, to consider it irrelevant, to just say, well, let's just move past that, much like people look at eschatology often, you know, the, the pan-millennials that say it'll all pan out in the end, you know, we, we, we just kind of put that aside and say we don't need to think about that, uh, but I will say that uh, I, I I think it's it's uh, these difficult doctrines should, should cause us to be more like Sherlock Holmes. And I, I saw a commentator mention it this before. I'm a big fan of the old Sherlock Holmes books. And what he, what he said was, you know, when, we consider, when Sherlock Holmes would see a mystery or a murder or some kind of thing that was so baffling, it didn't make any sense. It didn't make him say, well, let's just move away from that. We can't solve it. It made him dive in deeper. So as we consider this, this doctrine of the Trinity and, and the impossible task of defining and defending and all these of this doctrine, uh, let the, the, the difficult nature of it challenge you to dive in deeper. And if you would just join with me in prayer as we just ask the Lord to bless this time. Lord, I just come before you right now. I just thank you so much for your grace. I thank you so much for your word that reveals who you are in all of your glory and all of your mystery and all of the wonderful majesty of our great triune God. Lord, I just thank you so much for the privilege of being here, being able to come together to exposit your word, to discuss your nature, to uh, to challenge one another's thinking for iron to sharpen iron. Lord, I just pray that, uh, that you would be glorified in this time, Lord, that you would uh, drive your word deep into our hearts. I just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, as we as we consider who God is, you know, everyone, everyone has a conception of God, even if that conception is that there is no God. They have some kind of conception of God. Now, if we know our Bibles, we know that Romans 1 teaches us that anyone who says there's no God is, is absolutely just suppressing the uh, the general revelation that they've been giving th- given they they are suppressing that truth that is in deep in the hearts of every single one of us that there is in fact a sovereign creator. Uh, in, In verses 18 through 20 of Romans 1, the Apostle Paul writes this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. So everyone knows in the the deepest depths of who they are, they know that there is a creator. But without God's special revelation, whether uh, through him directly revealing himself to someone, as he did with Adam and Abraham uh, and certainly Moses, or through the speech and, and writings of the prophets that we have in the scriptures, without those things, without that special revelation, we would never know him for who he truly is. The ancient Greeks and Romans conceived of not a god, but of multiple, many gods. And their gods, as they conceived them in their own minds, had more in common, I think, with the avengers in the, in the movies that we uh, see now in the in the theaters than they do the God of Scripture. Uh, They were just like us, but just more powerful. And actually, so it seems in the stories that they told about their gods, that uh, they were not only uh, more powerful, but also even more corrupt than many times, in in many ways, they have the same range of character flaws and corruption uh, that we see in humankind. Others conceive of God as being very impersonal, more like the force from Star Wars, to make my geek credentials even more... (laughs) obvious to you. Um, left to ourselves, we, we can and we have, as mankind, we have come up with a, a seemingly infinite number of different conceptions of God. And you've probably talked to people, you know, maybe you're trying to share your faith and you'll ask them what they believe about God or about eternity and they'll say things like, well, to me, God is this. Well, the reality is God is not whoever he is to you unless He is the God who is. There is only one God, as we've been talking about through this difficult doctrine of the Trinity. And on our own, we could never conceive of the God that we find in Scripture. We would never come up with the God who is. Even having the Scriptures, the Trinity is difficult to wrap our minds around. Uh, Actually... um, Caleb mentioned the, uh, where's Caleb? Is he in here somewhere? There he is. Uh, He mentioned the quote earlier. He credited it to Jonathan Edwards. Actually, I believe it was John Wesley, but I could be wrong. You could be right. Uh, But certainly the the quote that he used earlier was, bring me a worm that can comprehend a man, and then I will show you a man that can comprehend the triune God. Uh, The idea of the Trinity is just mind-boggling. And since uh, Pastor Paul here took care of the heavy lifting of defining the Trinity, we will now dive into defending the Trinity uh, as best we are able. Believe it or not, uh, this doctrine does come under attack from time to time. As Pastor Caleb mentioned, uh, this is pretty much the issue that is under attack pretty much from every uh, every different angle. Uh, And and, you know, Christianity, as I hope you won't be shocked to hear, Christianity is unique amongst all uh, different spiritual belief systems. And there's a number of different reasons why Christianity is unique. One reason, of course, you may have heard this, uh, put this way before, with every other religion, I don't care if it's uh, Mormonism or, uh, or the Islam or any, any other religion you can name, in every single other religion, uh, we are, it, it is about uh, what you need to do, whereas true biblical Christianity is about what God has done in Christ. Other religions are all about effort, while Christianity, of course, is all about grace. But Christianity is unique in another way as well. There are, uh, as I mentioned, the Greeks and Romans, there are religions uh, throughout the world that believe in many gods called polytheism. Uh, Hinduism would be a prime example of a uh, modern-day polytheistic religion. And then there's religions that believe in only one God. That would be monotheism, and of course, Christianity would be monotheistic. We believe, as do the Jews and the Muslims, that there is only one God. But what separates us, uh, among other things, what seriously separates us from these other monotheistic religions is our understanding that we believe in one God, but a single God who exists, as we just learned in three persons, eternally existing in three persons, and that's where our uniqueness really comes in. There's no category in any other belief system for a God who is three but is also one. So we stand alone. And this doctrine, again, has already been pointed out by Pastor Paul quite well, uh, is supremely important. Uh, Kevin DeYoung from the Gospel Coalition wrote an article back in 2011 entitled, The Doctrine of the Trinity no Christianity without it. And that is absolutely true. There may be people who would call themselves Christians that do not believe in the Trinity. There may be people who say they believe in the Trinity but don't believe in the orthodox view of the Trinity and call themselves Christians, but none of them are really Christians without believing in the, tri- the triune God in the way that the Bible lays it out. Uh, C.S. Lewis said this regarding the Trinity. He said, All sorts of people are fond of repeating the Christian statement that God is love, but they seem not to notice that the words God is love has no real meaning unless God contains at least two persons. Love is something that one person has for another person. If God was a single person, then before the world was made, he was not love. If you're to have love, you must have a lover and a beloved. The doctrine of the Trinity is often challenged in one sense. One reason why it's often challenged is because the word Trinity does not appear in the Bible. People may, as you've probably come across in your churches, people may struggle to understand the doctrine of election, but if they do hold to the inspiration of the Scriptures, they can't argue that it doesn't exist because the word is in there. Uh, With the word Trinity, it, it is not there, so there is a bit more of a challenge. And we refer, when we talk about the Trinity, we refer to a God who is one essence, but multiple persons. But that terminology, as well as the word Trinity, really wasn't in use until Tertullian uh, coined it in the early third century. So there was a period of time where people were wrestling through how to understand what the scripture says about the, the, the Godhead. Some struggle with the idea of the Trinity simply because it doesn't make logical sense to them. How can this be? How can there be someone who, or how can there be three that are also one? It, it seems, as, as again, Pastor Paul pointed out, to be a contradiction. So how do we, how do we reconcile that? But yet we, we see throughout all of life, really, as well as in Scripture, multiple occasions uh, of plurality seen as one. Consider the fact in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24 we're told that a man and his wife together become one flesh. When children are born, that group forms one family. The motto of our country is e pluribus unum, which means out of many, one. Of course, marriage, family, and country aren't anywhere near perfect illustrations of the Trinity any more than an egg or states of water or any of these other things that people use to try to understand it. And it, it is true again that this was a difficult doctrine to nail down in the early uh, times of the church. Again, all the church councils that were trying to really uh, nail this uh, this um, uh, this doctrine down. However, it's these difficulties in no way uh, are proof that this doctrine is false. As difficult as it is to wrap our minds around this truth of the three-in-one God, it's the only way to really make any sense or to harmonize the Scriptures together other than the doctrine of the Trinity. Augustine once said of the Trinity, In no other subject is error more dangerous or inquiry more laborious or the discovery of truth more profitable. When it comes down to it, for the doctrine of the Trinity to be accepted as true... There's several things that need to also be true. We need to be able to demonstrate that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are each, in fact, distinct persons. We also need to demonstrate that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are each and all fully God. They aren't demigods, they aren't possessing aspects of godhood, but each person is fully God. And then we need to demonstrate that even though each of those three persons is all fully God, we need to demonstrate also that there is only one God. And if all of these things can be shown in Scripture to be true, then it would follow that the doctrine of the Trinity is also true. So we're going to consider each of these propositions quickly and one at a time. Uh, First of all, let's consider the fact of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit being distinct persons from one another. And if you are here and you were to deny that truth and say, no, I don't believe that, I don't believe that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are each a different distinct person, then you've bought into a, a, a historical heresy known as modalism or also known as sabellianism. So named after a priest who began to focus his teaching on the oneness or the unity of God, at the expense of his triunity. Sabellianism or modalism still ex- exists today in the form of oneness Pentecostalism. Also, uh, the Unitarian Church would also buy into this same idea. And probably the well-known, most well-known person associated with oneness Pentecostalism today would be T.D. Jakes. You may have seen him on TV or anything, um, he, uh, he tends to be vague when talking about the Trinity, because he wants to sell books, probably, uh, but um, to my knowledge, he's never firmly stated his agreement with the orthodox view. Modalism teaches that there's no distinction at all between the members of the Godhead. There is one person, one God, but he has chosen to manifest himself differently at particular times and for different purposes. Modalists will say that God presents himself in three different modes of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They're all the same person in the same way that I am one man, but I function as a husband, as a father, and as a pastor. You know, that seems to make logical sense on the surface. It's easier to grasp, right? It makes, okay, I can buy that, I can understand that, I can wrap my mind around it. But does it line up with the biblical data? Well, considering we're here at a conference just talking about the Trinity, I would say no. <laughs> no, it does not line up with the biblical data. The scripture, scripture doesn't reveal a God who plays three different roles or three different parts, uh, but a truly triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as distinct persons. As we carefully examine the Scripture, we can see this clear evidence of the Father as distinct from the Son, and the Son as distinct from the Spirit, and certainly the Spirit as distinct from the Father. For example, while Jesus claimed to be one with the Father, He also prayed directly to Him as a separate person. It reminds me of what uh, my, my aunt uh, used to say all the time. Uh, she used to say, you know, it's okay if you talk to yourself. She would say, it's even okay if you answer yourself, but when you say to yourself, what did you say? That's when you know you have a problem. <laughs> But we see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane preparing for his impending crucifixion and, and going through a, a, a truly spiritual battle. And in Matthew twenty six thirty nine it says, And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. We see this also when Jesus is informing his disciples that he's going to send them the Holy Spirit. In John 14:16 and 17, he says this, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. If Jesus is the same as the Father, these two statements are absolutely ridiculous. Also ridiculous would be the incredible high priestly prayer in John 17. Jesus refers to the Father glorifying him so that he can glorify the Father. He talks about the Father giving him authority over eternal life and that he accomplished the work, all of the work that the Father gave him to do. He also talks about the disciples as having been given to him by the father Jesus asks the father to keep the disciples from the evil one and to sanctify them in the truth he goes on to say that the father is the one who sent him into the world and that he was loved by the father before the very foundation of the world now again if Jesus and the father are the same person this is absolutely nonsensical in addition Jesus refers to both the Father and the Holy Spirit as separate people in uh, John 14, 6, as I referenced a few moments ago, fourteen twenty six. excuse me, where he says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. The Father is sending. The Spirit is teaching and helping the disciples to remember Jesus's words, which is going to come in really, really handy when they write the New Testament. Both the Spirit and the Father are clearly seen here as distinct persons from the Son. One chapter later in John 15, 26, Jesus says that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and will bear witness about the Son. And Jesus, shortly before his ascension, instructed his followers to baptize new disciples in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul mentioned each member of the Trinity in the final words that he wrote to Second, in 2 Corinthians. He wrote, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Clearly, he's referring to three specific persons, not different roles of the same person. Not to leave out the Apostle Peter, he said in 1 Peter 1-2 that uh, the believers were elected according to the foreknowledge of God the Father... In the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. And then, of course, at Jesus' baptism, we see all three members of the Trinity are involved. The Son is actually being baptized by John the Baptist. And then it says, When he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. We have three distinct persons, each performing their designated tasks. So, hopefully, understanding these passages, we have arrived at the conclusion that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are each distinct persons from one another. But we also need to show that each one of them, well, maybe distinct from one another, each one of them is fully God. Now, there's been many, of course, who've denied this truth throughout history, uh, most commonly in the area of Christ Himself, claiming that He is not, in fact, deity, that He is not, in fact, God. Arianism is an ancient heresy named for a 4th century priest who, who taught that Jesus was not God, but He was a created being. Jehovah Witnesses and Mormons would be modern variations, I guess, on Arianism. Jehovah Witnesses will deny the deity of Christ by pointing to passages in the Scripture uh, that seem to teach that Jesus is less than fully God. Some of you may be familiar that the Jehovah Witnesses do use the Bible, but they have their own translation, the New World Translation, uh, and, and they've made a couple little adjustments in there. And in John 1:1, which was wonderfully brought out by our brother a few moments ago, uh, they've inserted a, the word. A in there uh, that does not, uh, is not warranted in the original language. And so in their Bible, it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. It's a clear manipulation of the text. But they, they do other, also use other passages that are the same in our translations to defend this idea that Jesus is not Almighty God. John chapter 14, verse 28, Jesus says, the Father is greater than I. So they look at that and say, look, obviously, He's not equal with God. He says the Father is greater than I. He didn't claim equality. In John uh, chapter 20, verse 17, Jesus tells Mary Magdalene, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And they say, well, listen, he's saying that this is his God, so he clearly can't be God. If the Father is Jesus' God, how can he be God? Not to leave out what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 8, 6. They love this one, too. Uh, yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom all things, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. Now, looking at those passages, and there's others, but you look at those passages, it's, it's very easy to see how people who have never been steeped in solid doctrine, that have never been properly educated in the scriptures, could be easily swayed into believing that Jesus is not fully God. And that's why systematic theology is so important, and doctrine, Excuse me, conferences like this are so important. I won't go too far into Mormon theology for the sake of time, but very simply, Mormons believe that both the Father and Jesus are men with uh, bodies of flesh and bone. I remember I had a conversation with a Mormon once, and uh, they were trying to, you know, share with me their their theology, and I was kind of coming back with them. We had a very nice conversation, Uh, and they told me, I said, well, you believe that the Father has flesh and bones, right? Yeah, well, and I showed them scripture that clearly refuted that, and they said, well, you got to understand, have you ever played the game of telephone? And I said, sure. He said, well, you know, the Bible has been kind of passed on and passed on, so it's kind of been distorted, but the Book of Mormon is pure. So, okay. So the Jehovah Witnesses, excuse me, the Mormons, just like the Jehovah Witnesses, would say that Jesus is a God in some form, but he's not the God. They believe that the uh, that Jesus is merely one of the Father's many sons, born to him and a celestial mother. Um, I, I, if you ever really look into Mormon doctrine, it, it, it more resembles science fiction than it does theology, to be quite honest with you. But what does the Bible teach? The Bible teaches that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all fully God. They are all truly God. Again, one in essence, three in persons. That the Father is fully God is very easy to see in Scripture. Most even heretical groups don't deny that. Uh, The New Testament authors, a number of them actually use the term God, the Father. Uh, The same verses that the Jehovah Witnesses would use to deny the Trinity can be used to prove the deity of the Father. Uh, just to give you a few others, Psalm 89, verse 26 says, You are my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. Isaiah 64, 8. But now, O Lord, you are our Father, we are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 6. One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And then 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And we could certainly go on. It's, uh, there are, that's a scratching the surface, barely. But the deity of the Son, the deity of Jesus, is a much more hotly contested issue. Um, but if you work through the, the full counsel of Scripture regarding Christ, it's, it's really impossible, if you're going to be intellectually honest, to deny that Jesus is fully God. We can start with Jesus' assertions about himself. People say, well, Jesus never actually really claimed to be God. And while it's true that we have no record of him actually saying those words, I am God, he did say, I and the Father are one, which is pretty darn close. He also said in John chapter 8, Truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am now, that sounds like odd grammar, just, you know, on the surface. But that's more than Jesus just saying, you know, I'm older than I look. That's that's, that's a bit more than that. The fact that he says, I am and not I was, is of supreme uh, importance. When God spoke to Moses from the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, Moses asked, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, uh, what is his name, what shall I say to them? And God responded by saying, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So Jesus was absolutely calling himself God. And the Jews weren't confused at all. They, were, they, they totally knew what he was saying. They didn't sit back and go, what do you mean by that? No, they picked up rocks. They were going to stone him right there. They, they considered him, he, they said he was committing blasphemy. Now I want to mention just briefly, which kind of echoes back to the first point, but uh, one question that can arise when discussing each member of the Trinity as truly and fully God, and uh, when we consider Jesus as the I Am. The question is this. If the Father is identical to God, and the Son is identical to God, then doesn't it logically follow that the Father is identical to the Son? And if that statement is true, again, that uh, that diagram that, that Pastor Paul put up earlier is helpful in this, but if that statement is true, then we get into some real theological trouble because the Father didn't die for our sins, the Son did. So to answer this hypothetical question, we need to distinguish between the identity and the property of God. The three members of the Trinity are separate in identity, but they are the same in property. For example, I'm identical to a human being, and my father is also identical to a human being, but I am not identical to my father. We're the same property, we're both humans, but we're separate in identity. He is my father, and I am his son. Now, that analogy doesn't hold all the way through because uh, we are not, my Father and I are not one being as God the Father and the Son are, but, but it may be helpful. For some additional evidence of the deity of Jesus, we can look at Thomas, doubting Thomas. He initially doubted the resurrection, but upon seeing Jesus and touching his scars, he understood exactly who he was. And what I mean by that is he didn't just know, okay, yeah, it really is Jesus alive. He knew exactly who he was. He cried out to Jesus and said, my Lord and my God. And Jesus didn't say, wait, 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 you don't understand. That, That isn't, you're going too far here. He accepted worship because he is God. The beginning of the Gospel of John, properly translated, clearly teaches the deity of Christ. Again, uh, John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. In verse 3, we see that all things were created through this Word. And in verse 14, we see that this Word who created all things became flesh and dwelt among us, making it quite clear that this Word is Jesus Himself. Paul also referred to Jesus as God and Uh, Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, he says, In him, meaning Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Titus chapter 2, verse 13, tells us uh, that we should be waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Even back in the Old Testament, we see evidence of the deity of Christ. In Isaiah chapter 7, very familiar passage, it says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. And again, we know from the book of Matthew that Emmanuel means God with us. Two chapters later, chapter nine, verse six, we're told of the, uh, a child that would be born, that is also a son that is given, and it says, "His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace." Starting to feel like Christmas. The biblical testimony to Christ's deity is absolutely clear. The great Puritan Thomas Watson, uh, Thomas Watson once said this, they, they that deny Christ to be God must greatly rest, and that's W-R-E-S-T, not R-E-S-T. They must greatly rest or else deny the Scripture to be the Word of God. Jesus is God. The Father is God. And last but not least, the Holy Spirit is God. Jehovah Witnesses believe that the Holy Spirit is simply the power of God. He's not a person, he's just a, a power. He's an unleashing of God's power. However, a power cannot be grieved. A power cannot teach, cannot guide, cannot comfort, convict, or command, and those are all things that are attributed to the Holy Spirit in Scripture. Muslims actually believe that the Spirit is the angel Gabriel, but the scriptures reveal him as fully God. In the early church, in the book of Acts, we have a a very clear picture of this. When Peter confronted Ananias for lying in Acts chapter 5, he said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And then he went on in the very next verse and said, Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. So, according to Peter, there in Acts chapter 5, the Holy Spirit is not an angel or a power, but is nothing less than God himself. In Acts chapter 13, verse 2, we see the Holy Spirit speaks. He says, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Jesus in John chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, reveal, uh, reveals that we need to be born of the Spirit. Yet in 1 John 3.9, the term being used is being born of God. To quote Thomas Watson one more time, he said, The devil would have Christ prove himself to be God by turning stones into bread, but the Holy Ghost shows his Godhead by turning stones into flesh. Of course, referencing Ezekiel 36 as, In salvation our stony heart becomes flesh and can respond to God. We see the Holy Spirit exhibiting a number of the attributes of God in the Scripture. Hebrews 9, uh, chapter 9, verse 4, the Holy Spirit is said to be eternal. Uh, Psalm 139, 7 and 8 speaks of the Spirit's omnipresence. And His omniscience can be seen in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. Throughout Scripture, again, we see all three members of the Trinity linked together. To give one example, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, it says, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So we made the case that each member of the Trinity is a, a, a distinct person, and that each one, according to the Scriptures, is fully God. But if we leave it there... We're in danger of tritheism. Three gods, which is what the Muslims accuse us of. You worship three gods. God is one. So we need to briefly make the case that even with three distinct persons who are each fully God, there is still only one God. The scriptural evidence here is certainly not lacking. Isaiah 45, verse 5 says, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me there is no God. Deuteronomy 6, 4, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Paul in Romans 3, uh, chapter 3, verse 30, says that God is one. And in 1 Timothy 2, 5, there is one God. James chapter 2, verse 19, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Thomas Adams known as the Shakespeare of the Puritans said this regarding Matthew 28:19 the great commission. He said baptizing them in the name of the Father of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. The Father, Son and Holy Ghost there are three distinct persons in the name, not names there is one essence. The doctrine of the Trinity as has been pointed out is critical, critical to the Christian faith. If not for the truth of the Trinity, both the Incarnation and the Atonement would not be possible. Without being separate and distinct persons, the Father wouldn't be able to pour judgment out on the Son, and the Son wouldn't have been able to be the offering for sin. Wayne Grudem writes this, Justification by faith alone is threatened if we deny the full deity of the Son. Uh, he says, this is seen today in the teaching of the Jehovah Witnesses who do not believe in justification by faith alone. Our doctrine of God will necessarily affect our doctrine of salvation. The two hang together. So we see the doctrine of the Trinity isn't simply an abstract theological concept, but it lies at the heart of Christian faith and practice. J.C. Ryle said, it is It was the whole Trinity, which at the beginning of creation said, let us make man. I love this. It was the whole Trinity again, which at the beginning of the gospel seemed to say, let us save man. The doctrine of the Trinity is thoroughly grounded in the scriptures. The Bible attests to full deity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit each distinct from the other in personhood, but together as one God. And as believers, we can and should confidently declare and defend the triune nature of our amazing and infinitely gracious God. I'm going to end there because I don't want to hold up your lunch. So let's have a word of prayer real quick. Lord, I just thank you once again for your word. I thank you for this truth of the Trinity. I pray, Lord, that you would uh, take these truths and hide them in our heart, that we would worship you well. pray this in Jesus' name.